Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Support for Survivors. This is your host, Honesty Terrell. Today, we welcome Beth White to the show. Beth is the Executive Director of the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault and Human Trafficking, or ICASA-HT, as we call it. Thank you so much for being here, Beth. It's good to be with you, always. Oh, I I love you, so I'm very excited about this. So you have a very long history in public service. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background and then just let listeners know why you decided to come to ICESA HT and join this effort? Absolutely. First, let me say to you, Shaughnessy, thank you for uh, this podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, I am new in this um, in this subject matter, although I've been, as you said, in public service a long time. And it is so discouraging to know that uh, sexual assault, human trafficking are two areas in particular that we just don't talk about. And we have this theory that if we don't talk about it, it's not going to happen or it won't be bad or people who are experiencing this kind of horrific situation are just going to be fine. And that we know that's not true, right? We know that's not true. So the more we speak out and talk about how the shame and the blame has to be uh, removed from the situation, the better. And you are helping with that. And I appreciate it. Um, I've been a lawyer for about 30 years in Indianapolis, long time. It's um, I, I'm old. And uh, because that's true, I have had tremendous opportunities in my career. I'm just very, very blessed. And I grew up in Bloomington. Dad was a professor and we loved, you know, the People's Republic of Bloomington, as I like to call it. It's a very special <laughs> place in Southern Indiana. But then I, I did my undergrad at IU, went out to Georgetown for law school and came home. And I came home because I, I knew that while the environment in Indiana is not what a lot of progressive folks like myself and potentially you want it to be, we we have to work every day to make it. You know, we need to be the change we want to see, right? So I came home to be that change. And so, so over the course of that time, I've had a lot of great opportunities. I started in private practice at Barnes and Thornburg and had a, a short but very impactful opportunity to meet and experience um, that law firm. And then went from there to the prosecutor's office, did criminal work. And that's a, a way, Shaughnessy, that you and I uh, have experience in common. So I did that work for a little while and I went to child protection and I was a chief counsel at child protection. And that was, that was a really impactful opportunity as well, because boy, I grew up as a white girl of privilege in a, in an academic environment where, you know, everybody, pretty much everybody was fine. And, and mm-hmm. we were, and boy, I just got a real crash course in, in what happens to um, folks who are struggling. And that was a tremendous learning opportunity for me. Went from there, worked to state government, did some policy work, uh, worked for Mayor Peterson, did some more policy work, did some other uh, kinds of things that were really great for me and important. Was elected clerk in six, re-elected in 10, loved elections, understand that the vote is our currency of democracy. And if we don't protect it, we're in real trouble. So I uh, did that, uh, ran statewide office, ran four statewide office, I didn't win. Uh, which is the way this works. And then I went to a not-for-profit and did some more policy work on behalf of Mayor Hogsett. So so here we are. And why am I in this work? Well, one of the things that I believe is my uh, gift is advocacy. 
I love to work hard on not only changing a political environment and a policy environment, but also changing hearts and minds. You know, it, we've seen a lot go on in the 30 years I've been practicing law um, in this in this state, uh, including things like marriage equality, which I had the opportunity to be a part of. Things have changed for the better. You know, people, things have changed in our racial environment. Not great, not perfect, you know. Um, sometimes not good, but we are we are seeing progress. And my son is 13, and and I have seen in him really the hope for for a more um, accepting and open state of Indiana. So I'm I'm hopeful, and I believe that sexual assault, human trafficking, the kind of impact it has on the people of Indiana is a crisis. And we got to talk about it. We got to be about it. We've got to wake up every day and and understand that survivors often can't speak for themselves. And so we have to speak for them. And so that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to do. And I'm I'm pleased to be here to talk with you about it. Well, that's a perfect segue into talking about what Ikesa does. But I love, I love to hear you say that. You're very clearly a person who, you know, sees an issue and is like, well, that's, you're not just like, oh, that sucks because it does suck. But you <laughs> actually try to do something about it. And we sure could use more people like that. So why don't you just take us through what ICASA HT does, kind of like where you guys are at right now, what phase of life or so to speak that you're in and all of the different awesome things that you guys do for the community. Yeah. So the Indiana coalition is the Indiana's version. Every state has a coalition. We advocate, we engage, and we educate. We help and support the organizations that do direct service in the state of Indiana. We are not the direct service provider, but we have um, partners all around the state. We are a statewide organization. We do prevention education. And one of the things, one of my goals is to lean more heavily into prevention. Wouldn't it be great if instead of responding to sexual assault and supporting survivors, we had the opportunity to reduce the numbers? Um, and we advocate uh, at, the, at the state level, uh, at the local level with law enforcement. We are a partner with our, uh, not only our, what are, we call our rape crisis centers around the state who are doing direct service for folks who are experiencing the impact of being a survivor, but we also engage with law enforcement. We engage with our healthcare partners. We engage with educators, K-12, higher ed, all of the places we engage with young, with organizations who serve people, young people. Um, everywhere that adults and young people are engaging together, there is risk. Uh, and so we do training curriculum. We do ways that folks can identify and help protect young people. So that's the work we do. It's a great privilege. It's it's a wonderful organization and just such a great platform. And I'm so happy to have you here and have you at ICAS HD. And one thing that is awesome about all the education efforts and training you do is that there's something for everyone. You guys do things that are more focused for an advocate audience, more focused for a survivor audience, for law enforcement, even prosecutors, and even civil attorneys for that matter, everyone in between. So I love that. Are you guys getting ready to have a conference or did you just have one? We have our conference in April, which is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So we just had it and we do we do two sort of cohorts of training. But I just hired a new a training and prevention coordinator. I'm super excited about him, young man who uh, is a, was an athlete at D1, and he uh, and I are going to work hard in creating some new content for our higher ed partners, for our K12 partners. So uh, it, it was previously true at ICASHT that we that our training and education really was focused around the conference and then a couple of other times. But we're going to really try hard to create and package lots and lots of training and curriculum on demand for all of the cohorts you mentioned and many others. I love that. I love the school aspect of it too. And I'm so refreshed too by you even mentioning your own son and then the fact that you have 
a young man coming on to help because I think that this subject matter is led so much by female initiatives and rightly so probably, but discussing the importance of having males in these roles too and teaching our boys what is what is right and what is wrong because we've spent so much time I feel like over the course of history teaching girls how to not put themselves in a situation so to speak but we should be also teaching our boys what is rape what is sexual assault and don't do it I think that so many people have this this false definition of rape in their minds because of course it is what you know we think of like uh, you know the stranger jumping out of the bushes with a weapon or something of course but it's not just that it encompasses so much more and we'll get a little bit more into how our legislation has changed recently to better focus on the other situations that can arise that constitute sexual assault and not just when you're forced or threatened Absolutely right. Their consent is a, is a significant issue. And it really starts when kids are young and talking about bodily autonomy, right? What's, you know, what's, what's appropriate, what isn't appropriate, you know, for, for little kids and, and who you can touch and where and when, and when someone says no, no means no. And that starts on the playground and it goes everywhere from the playground to the party, to the dorm room, to everywhere else. Right. And it, it's just something we've got to take seriously. And as much as we, we you know, we teach our kids to care for their, their bodies, they, they got to care for their emotional health too. And for them, um, helping them understand where those boundaries are and we're working on it. And, and really the other thing to talk about is to help parents engaging with young people about mm-hmm. what, what is appropriate to say and not say, and I love what you said about, we got to start talking to our boys. You know, it's the, it's, you know, we, we've talked a lot, as you said about, you know, what to do if you're a young woman on a college campus or whatever, but you know, how about we just say to men, no, um, this behavior is not appropriate and here's why. And, and you've got to be better. And, you know, I think you're right that we are experiencing, we're in the middle of a cultural change. And I think the me too movement can be pinpointed as a catalyst for a lot of that change and we're doing better, but it's still not good. And so just touching a little bit on the cultural issues that we face as it pertains to sexual assault, our knee-jerk reaction in this country, and I think in a lot of other countries as well, is just to not believe victims. Like there's always a reason or like, and I, I saw this all the time in jury trials when I was talking, trying to talk to jurors and be like, oh my God. And they, the knee-jerk reaction is what did she do? You know, literally what was she wearing? Was she drinking? Things like that. So are those some of the types of things that you guys are trying to battle in these education efforts with the um, young people? Absolutely. Yes. So it's the shaming and the blaming. We talk a lot about why people don't come forward. Rape, of course, sexual assault, the most underreported crime of any by exponential numbers. Why don't people come forward? Women and men, we try very hard to be a gender neutral, gender neutral discussion because, you know, everyone is, is at risk. And the number one reason is you won't be believed. You are shamed and blamed. You will be put on the defensive about, again, what were you wearing? Where were you? Were you drinking? Did you know him? Did you go with him? Did you go to his dorm room, all of these things that we say to people that we don't say to other crime victims, right? You leave your door unlocked and someone steals everything you own. The police are going to respond. They are going to try to find your shit and get it back, pardon my language, and get it back to you. They're going to be sorry that this happened to you, right? That's not what we do with sexual assault victims in this society. <laughs> it is, it's appalling. It is appalling and we've got to change it. So, so we're very serious about that. And 
we want people to come forward. But the other thing, and I want to, I want to, this is related. So I want to say to you, Shauna Steve, thank you for your law firm having a trauma-informed approach to this. It's really important that we, that those of us in this area who are serving and helping survivors understand the impacts of trauma and what trauma means and what it does and what what it does to people who are impacted by this kind of trauma. And a trauma-informed approach means that really the survivor or the victim, which we sometimes use the terms interchangeably, the person who has experienced the assault is in the driver's seat. Many, many people don't want to come forward for various reasons, and they are valid reasons. The law enforcement system is not something that they trust. They are, they risk and they fear the risk of, of the impact of a public a public airing of what happened to them. They have kids that are at risk. The perpetrator is a person of power over them or over others, right? Uh, and so it is, there are all kinds of reasons and people get to decide, right? And so we, we have to think in the trauma-informed environment about people don't come forward. We don't shame or blame when they don't, right? So those of us who are advocating and helping survivors don't say to them, well, come forward or other people are going to get raped, right? It's right. your responsibility, right, to come forward and to stop this behavior. No, 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 no. Nobody ever deserves to be raped, mm-hmm. ever. I don't care what you're wearing. I don't care what you drank. I don't care where you went. I don't care if you knew him or went to his dorm room or were, you know, was, were in a relationship with him for 15 years. No one ever deserves this conduct for this to happen to them. And so we, those of us who serve survivors have got to come from through a lens of what does the survivor need and want and how do we come alongside and support them? And I mean, I was a prosecutor, you were a prosecutor. I believe in our criminal justice system as imperfect as it is. It is racially imperfect. It is gender-based imperfect. It is power-based. It is economically imperfect. You are more likely to get a fair trial if you are a person of privilege and wealth. I know this to be true. I've seen this happen. I know this is true. I became a lawyer to try to fight against it and we, we each do what we can, but it is true that the system is imperfect. But I believe that the power and control that you lose when you are become a victim, you can regain some of it through holding your perpetrator accountable. And I believe we live in a civilized society where, you know, sort of the wild west kind of, well, I'll hold my perpetrator accountable by having my you know, my brothers kill him, right? That's not, that is not a thing that we want to encourage. We believe in a system that has rules and that is civilized. But I also know that many survivors don't find that system responsive to them. So uh, it's a really long answer to your question, but I believe this is all tied in together with the trauma-informed approach that we take and meeting survivors where they are and understanding that their process for their healing has to be of their choosing. 100% agree. And, you know, I've got to give all the credit to Greg Laker on assembling a team and getting them trained trauma-informed in our office. And it is important. And unfortunately we have potential clients that come to us all the time who have talked to another attorney who said something and, you know, that attorney had the best intentions, but they don't know what the hell they're doing. And then they say something that at best is inoffensive and at worst is re-traumatizing. And we do our best to make sure that we don't put people back through that But I couldn't agree more with your thoughts about the criminal justice system. And that's why I love that you're doing what you're doing. And we're trying to do these things because we all could do better, obviously. And there's such a lack of awareness and understanding of trauma and its effects within the criminal justice system. And I think it's all the players. It's it's prosecutors, it's defense attorneys, it's judges. It's even some of the service providers through like probation or community corrections. And that's why I think that training all of these individuals in these different populations and subpopulations is so important. 
because I know so much more about trauma now than I even did when I was a prosecutor. Sure. Anecdotally, I was seeing things when you're boots on the ground, but it wasn't until later when I went to IPAC that I was able to take so many more of these trainings and then eventually start teaching some of them that I fully understood. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there are so many cases that I think would be one that aren't one in criminal court, if they had someone, an expert to come in and testify to those counterintuitive behaviors that the rest of us don't understand. I always tell everyone, you don't get an instruction manual when you get sexually assaulted. And so it's not my place, your place to sit here and say, well, why didn't you do X, Y, Z? Well, you know what? You haven't been in that position. It's very easy to say, oh, well, I would have done this. You don't know that. No one knows that until you've been in a situation like that and find out what your trauma response is, because it's different for different from people. It's um, fight, flight, freeze. And you don't know. And a lot of people it's freeze. And so the, the rest of us just understand that. And I think too, we're combating in a, a sexual assault case. It's just like you said, it's so different than a burglary or a robbery where it's so much easier. But in these cases, it's like, we're challenging people's worldviews too. And if they are you know, told that their neighbor who mows their lawn every week and has been really great to them, you know, could sexually assault them. That's, that's a tough pill to swallow. And so you're challenging so much more, I think, about what the world really looks like when when people have to really consider that. And I think they have a hard time. I've seen some interesting research that's been done about juries. And what we see is that female jurors in particular are hardest on sexual assault victims. And there's, there are all kinds of different psychological reasons for that. But one of the, and one of the things that resonates with me is this sort of what I call the illusion of safety. I mean, to your point, the whole, well, I'm a female juror, right. With, with not a trauma informed, you know, perspective and, and here are the things I would do to keep myself safe. Right. I'm, I'm, you know, never gonna date a guy who's violent and I'm never going to drink too much. And I'm never going to go to a bar where these people hang out. Right. As if you could even know that. And so the illusion of safety is like, well, I can keep myself safe. And this person did a reckless thing or a foolish thing, or a, you know, a thing that put them in harm's way. And and they, in some ways deserve what they, what they got. Right. And that is the, that is an illusion. No one ever, ever, ever deserves to be sexually assaulted. We have a concept at the office, we talk a lot about the myth of the perfect victim, right? And I, you know, I joke because I, I use humor to try to deal with things that are horrible, but you know, it's the, it's grandma, she's coming home from, from a Bible study, right? And she's wearing her high collar and she's doing her thing and she hasn't been drinking and she does, and she's walking and somebody jumps out of the bushes that she's never met before and, you know, and rapes her. So then she goes immediately to the police and she spends eight hours in the emergency room submitting to the sexual assault kit exam that they do. And she calls her victim advocate back every single time they call her and she shows up at court early and she does her thing. Right. Not, that's just not what we know. To be true, <laughs> right. Ever, ever, ever. And if, you know, if something like that does happen, a stranger in a situation, you know, that, that's, it's got awful. Of course, the vast majority of these cases are someone, you knew, someone you may have had a relationship with, you are at risk for various reasons because, you know, because you've been drinking or because you are um, a, a sex worker or you have used illegal drugs or whatever it is. And you, you know, you are in a position where you are vulnerable. Aren't we all? Yep. And so yep. this happens to you. You are not to blame. And I was actually sitting around the prosecutor's office. I'm going to tell you this, John, stay because you, you know how this works. And I actually heard a male prosecutor say, I really would just like to see a perfect rape. Mm-hmm. And I stopped and I, and I said, okay, I don't understand. The guys laugh like they do. And so what, what, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, I just really like to see rape where 
you know, she was just not doing anything wrong and the, she didn't know the guy and he was a predator. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my good Lord. Um, right. I mean, these are professional people who are, who we pay in a society to help survivors and my God. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not just, it's everybody. It's, it's, it's a mindset we have to change. It starts with kids. It starts with my son. Right. We, and you know, my poor son, I mean, he's 13, right. The, he, I'm sure he wants to talk about sexual assault with his mom. Like he wants, <laughs> he wants a sharp stick in the eye. Right. So we're driving along. Right. And I'm like, honey, we have to talk about this. He's like, mom, I'm going to baseball. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, but I just, I cannot help myself because we have to start with our kids and help them understand where are the lines? Where are the boundaries? He's going to college and I know, you know, in college is a time when young people mm-hmm. are together and things are happening and we've just got to do better. That's all I can say. hundred percent agree. You know, sure. I love to see what a perfect, I want, I love a world where there's no lying or stealing or cheating or whatever, but I live in reality. And right. so what we have to do is prepare our kids for that and teach them. And, you know, we also talk a lot to parents about using, even starting with just using anatomically correct words because mm-hmm. using those cutesy little words for you know the vagina the penis things like that those are the kids still that these perpetrators if, if studies have shown if it's kids who are body positive and who have been taught to use the anatomically correct terms they're less likely to be molested because an offender is going to know oh they're talking about things in that house and i don't want a kid who's going to talk about stuff and i'm not saying that foolproof means your kid's not going to get molested but it, it, i think it starts there and And again, just reiterating what you've said before is talking about it, shedding light on these things, because when they're still in the shadows and secrets breed misbehavior, and that's how it happens, because that's where this lives. It lives in the shadows. It doesn't live out in the light where, you know, I've had a couple cases in the last few years where thank God the kids came forward, told mom and dad before it got to that point, it was still in the grooming point. And so, you know, there's not a prosecution there, but now we know, and that kid didn't get molested. And right. so being able to have that open conversation and, and a child knowing I can go talk to my mom or my dad or my grandma, or oh, I have this trusted adult that I can tell if somebody's doing something that doesn't quite sit right. And I do, I think it starts there. Yeah. We have to trust um, everyone, kids included to you know, that spidey sense, right? That, that sense that something is wrong and preventing, you know, someone becoming a victim is really the goal, right? It needs to be the goal. Absolutely. hundred um, oh, percent. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, let's, let's, you know, we, we're running as we knew would be true. We have a lot to say and only a limited amount of time. So what is it you want to focus we're on? We're doing well. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the new legislation in Indiana as it pertains to the rape statute that is designed to reflect, you know, it's certainly not perfect, but it's an improvement by far over where we were. Let's talk about it was House Bill 1079 that does change the rate statute in Indiana. Absolutely true. So many of us, and I, I include my organization in that us because it's only been me for a couple of months, but many of us in this area have really hoped for years that we would define consent in the state of Indiana. Other states have done it. Ohio's done it. It's not crazy, but it is something that we believe is important to do. 1079, which is now House and World Act 1079, I want to thank the legislators and the governor who passed it and who uh, the governor signed it, clarifies consent. It does not define consent. It clarifies how we can help juries understand what consent is, right? So it talks about nonverbal conduct as an indicator that consent has not been given or has been withdrawn, right? So things like trying to put your clothes back on, trying to leave the room, crying, by saying that I don't, I do not consent, right? Are the ter- are words that I 
don't think come out of very many people's mouths, right? right. In the context of the, of this of the situation, but things like no, no, not not no, not here, not now, no, crying, putting clothes back on, the, the kinds of conduct which we can infer constitutes a lack of consent or withdrawn of consent. It used to be true that you really had to show force or the threat of force, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's another one of those things. We go back to it in the cases about the jury. Well, she, she didn't get hurt. And I, you know, you can't see me, but I'm using little air quotes. <laughs> she didn't have bruises, right? She wasn't. So is it true that in order to hold a perpetrator accountable, you got to get the, sh- the shit beat out of you? Is that what, is yeah. that what we're saying, right? You have, to, you have to fight to such an extent that he might kill you. Or you might live and get to try to prosecute him, right? Like that is a horrific thing to say to victims. That is the, that is not right. That's wrong. And so the notion that now we have other tools that prosecutors can use to help juries understand that consent was not given or withdrawn. 1079 helps. It moves us forward. It does not define consent. I I actually had, you know, no good deed goes unpunished upon the completion of 1079. And we were celebrating as well we should be in Indiana. Uh, I got some emails saying that this didn't go far enough and that you, Beth White, should stand up and call out the legislature for not doing the right thing. And, you know, I, I've been over there a lot in the General Assembly, and I, I really respect the people who, who serve over there because it's not easy. But I will tell you this, the most important thing is to live to fight another day. That is the most, imp- I'm telling you, and in a lot of things, this is true. My son plays ball and, you know, he, in politics and, you know, sports, half the people are going to lose, right? So I try to turn it into a life lesson, right? And so you run for office, you lose. I've done it. You play a game and you lose. He lost last, you know, yesterday in the final championship game. If, if losing is too hard for you, don't play. Mm-hmm. Um, you live to fight another day. You don't get hurt. You don't say things or do things to people that are going to going to destroy that relationship such that you can't have another conversation. And at the legislature, we live to fight another day. We will go back next year and we will talk some more about defining consent. We may not get there next year, year after that, I don't know, but this is a step in the right direction. And we are uh, rightfully happy and celebrating, not because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's not like a game where we played and we win, but we celebrate because it's going to help survivors. And that is the most important thing. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And it, it, this is how change is effectuated. It, it's baby steps sometimes. It's not. And when I was doing Hoosier Women Forward, one of the other women in the program who was amazing, I remember her saying one time, it's evolution, not revolution. And yeah. you know, we live in Indiana. And so we got to be realistic about what's going on. But this, you know, and every time we change something like this, like they did such a great job with this, they start, some of them, start listening a little bit more because, you know, their LAs were doing research on this. And now they're like, well, just so you know, representative or Senator, you know, this, this problem over here. And I've gotten a couple emails since 1079 was passed about some other tangential, but related issues that, you know, statute of limitations stuff. And I'm just thrilled that now, because they have a better understanding of trauma and of sexual assault, they're like, wait, maybe this law isn't fair because of what trauma does to a person. And I'm just like thinking my, I'm just thinking the Lord, everyone, I'm just happy because (laughs) anything that's going to help make it better and help, you know, hold offenders accountable and help survivors to move forward, you know, we're all in. And so I'm a hundred percent with you. Do we, could it be better? Sure. Is it a huge win? Absolutely. Evolution, not revolution. I like it. Um, and we, we, you know, and what, one thing I do, I do know is true is that lots of young people in particular, you're a lot younger than I am. So I'm, I don't want to hurt your feelings on this, but there is an impatience, right? There's an impatience. Yes. I, I get it. I do. But I'm old and I've seen, I've seen, you know, look back 30 years, I was in law school in the 
you know, in the late 80s, right? And I'm telling you, things are different and for the better in a lot of cases. And we we have to, evolution, not revolution. I'm, I'm with you. I actually was just talking about this with a couple of my, you know, I'm turning 40 tomorrow, but But we were talking about just, so my professional career, you know, is we'll say when I get out of law school, it was about 15 years old. And even from, I can see a huge difference, even from when I first got out of law school to now, and we were talking about uh, a certain fellow attorney who had a reputation for being handsy and inappropriate. And, you know, we put up with that shit. We just were like, we kind of grinned and bear and moved on. And he just got in trouble recently because this, this generation who's even just right behind us, they're like, no, we're not putting up with that crap anymore. And I was just so happy to hear it, honestly, that somebody stood up and said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take this. You can't do this. And that to me, I was like, okay, good. We're, we are making some progress here on the micro level. And, and these younger people are a little bit more, I think, emboldened to, to stand up and not put up with that crap anymore, which makes me very happy because I, I didn't, I didn't. Amen. They, yeah. There, there's something to be said for that courage, but we have to support. Right. And that's the other thing. I mean, I know we're, talking about sexual assault, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what, what can I do to, to help? Right. What can I, what can I do? Well, there are a couple of things, you know, you can give us money, right. <laughs> I, I would not be a very good not-for-profit leader if I didn't always, <laughs> always get that in there. And it's ikesaht.org, our, our website. It's a really kind of tortured acronym, but it's I-C-E-S-A-H-T.org. Um, But, but beyond that, right. What people can do is believe. And to your point about the story about that, you know, the handsy attorney, and we all knew him and judges too, right? And we all just were like, yeah, it's just the kind of the cost to do in business. And oh my God, it is not. So here's what people can do, right? People can believe survivors. This narrative, and thanks for mentioning the Me Too movement, because it's so interesting. You know, I mean, I believed Anita Hill, you were in grade school. You know, I, believe, I, know, though. <laughs> I know I believe the woman who came forward about um, our most recent Supreme Court justice uh, who now sits on the court, uh, who, um, you know, the allegations were made. I believe that the narrative about sexual assault that people make it up, that they make it up because they want to go find a law firm like you to sue somebody who's rich and make a lot of money. They make it up because they want to get, a you know, advantage in their divorce or their custody battle. They make it up because because it's fun or something to experience the scrutiny that sexual assault survivors right. experience. Uh, it's just it, it, this, you know, nothing, none of the research bears that out ever, 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 right? I mean, there are, people lie, right? To your point, you know, we'd love sure. to live in a world where people didn't lie. People do lie. But the vast majority of people who come forward and say that they have been a victim of this conduct are telling the truth. So we can believe them, number one, period. We can offer support. We can be about their own healing in the way that makes sense for them, right? And we have some great literature. And if and on our website, you send us an email, we will send you um, a stack of these pamphlets we have called When a Friend is Raped, you know, When a Child is Molested. We have done trauma-informed uh, research and put together some resources for folks about what to do, what to say, how to help. And that's the, you know, the first thing you can be. The other thing is to hold people accountable. One thing we know, and you referenced it before about people get away with this conduct when they are people of power, people of means, right? You know, you, you hear all the time about the coach and the, you know, the religious leader, you know, these are people in positions of power and respect. And the first instinct that I fight against, even I fight against this, and I do this work for a living, there's no way, right? This, like this pastor would not have done like, No, like this coach, like he's, you know, this, 
I don't know. I mean, he, God rest his soul, I guess, but Joe Paterno, right? Um, Bo Schembechler at Michigan. I mean, what did we just learn about Bo Schembechler? Knew for years the Michigan football trainers and the, co- the players came forward and the coaches were like, keep winning. I don't care, right? What, yep. what kind of corrupted world are we living in when people of power like that turn a blind eye for whatever reason, money, winning football games, what the hell? Mm-hmm. So believe when someone, when someone says I have been victimized and here is who, and it, it just seems like something you can't believe you need to believe and you just support. So those are I things can. you can do. Um, that's, that's a, such a good point. And when I'm doing some of my teaching, I'm like, you know, whether it's good intentions or not so good intentions on the part of these people in power positions who are not doing what they should be doing once it's reported to them. I'm like, at the end of the day, if you think that you are protecting the integrity of your organization by not doing something about it, you're dead wrong because it is going to come back. And if it come back, if it comes back later, it's going to be 10 times worse than if you just deal with the problem. Now you have to deal with it. And how many um, people will not be victimized if you stand, if you take a stand, it is, and again, it's for all kinds of reasons, you know, it's not just big time sports. I don't want to pick on sports, you know, Indiana is a sports state and we love our sports, right? But there's other things, there's scouting, religion, you know, the band director, the the Mm -hmm. choir director, I mean, it is, it's, again, back to what I said a minute ago, it is everywhere that young people are influenced by adults, there is risk. And we have got to understand the risk we've got to fight against it and we've got to support people who come forward whether they're young or they're not so young and they say this happened to me and it's wrong and we have got to be we got to believe and support that's it 100 agree okay well we always end the show with the same three questions so i'm going to ask you those now question one what does courage mean to you courage means living to fight another day it is, it takes a lot of courage to bite your tongue when somebody is just dead ass wrong and they're <laughs> wrong in such a way that it's just disgusting to listen to. It mm-hmm. takes courage to not call them out and, and just burn it, burn it down because what you smell is the, is that bridge burning. You'll never walk over it again. Yeah. Courage means living to fight another day. I love that. That's true. Uh, number two, what is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Oh, wow. Um, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And that's what my mother always used to say. And, you know, she started saying about my chores when I was little because I did not do my chores. But if you're going to, if you're going to wade in, you're going to do something, you're going to have the courage to stand up and do what you think is right and and live to fight another day, then you need to have the courage to do it right and to learn as much as you can. And and I believe that's great advice. I love that. Right. And I think, I think it is everything, just like you said, from doing your chores all the way up to how you, you know, live your life and the way you engage with your career. If you're going to do it, just then do it. Don't half-ass it or phone it in. Right. Um, Number three, last question. What is one question that you wish more people would ask you? Oh gosh. Um, (laughs) How can I help? I would wish, I mean, people ask me that a lot and, and I try to do what I can to help. Um, but I wish more people, forget about me. I wish more people would ask in their, in their life and in their world, how can I help? I interact with a lot of people who, who I don't even know what the word is. They're, they, they rage against what's wrong. Right. And there's a lot to be wrong. You know, if, if I thought too hard about it, I'm not sure I'd get out of bed, but honest to God, we live, I mean, it's bad. If people of color in this country, my God, how much worse can it get? Um, what happens with gun violence? I mean, come on. Uh, what what our economic inequality, the way our government interacts with our tax system that is so jacked up against working people. I mean, good Lord, I just stay in bed. But 
what I wish more people would say instead of raging against what's wrong, because rage is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. What I wish more people would ask is what can I do right here, right now, in this moment, what can I do? And what a world that would be. <laughs> it would, wouldn't it? I mean, what, you know, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a, a transformative thing? Mm -hmm. um, and I want to ask you a question. Where does Shaunaste come from? That's a lovely name. Does it mean something? Is it a amalgamation of Sean and... Well, sort of, yes. It's of Irish derivation of the name Shaughnessy. And then they just put the T's in there. Basically, I had hippie parents who um, were like trying to be cute, I guess. I don't know. And it's fine, but I sure wish they would have spelled it the way it sounds because <laughs> it's pain in the butt. Well, you know, you got to love your parents for all kinds of reasons. And, um, and you know, that run with what brought you here. So they, <laughs> they got you here. So uh, God bless them. It's been a delight to talk to you today, always. I hope this is not the first and only conversation that we're going to have. And anybody within the sound of my voice who wants to know more, please go to our website. Call me on the phone, send me an email. It's beth at ikesaht.org. And I want to I wanna talk to you if you're interested in talking about this topic. Awesome. And we'll definitely put the website in the show notes so anybody can go on and easily click on it if you need it. And Beth, thank you truly so much for being here. I truly appreciate that all you're doing, all that ICAS is doing, and just for your entire career because, you know, you could be doing whatever you wanted to do. And the fact that you're dedicating your time and talent to helping others is pretty brilliant or pretty just it's a beautiful thing i love it and i'm very appreciative and i know all survivors are very appreciative of the work you're doing too thank you very much and thanks for what you're doing and uh we'll we'll i'm sure talk some more oh i think so <laughs> uh and thank you to our listeners as always just submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com we appreciate you listening and we will see you next time <laughs>